sanctuary this morning. Today, and if you have your Bible with you, would you please go ahead and open up to the book of Romans, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 today. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, and uh, I would, lo- would love for you to open up one of those Bibles in the pew rack in front of you, and I will give you a shortcut. If you're using that black pew Bible, you'll find our passage, Romans chapter 8, on page 1003. And so let me encourage you to have your Bible open and take a few notes this morning uh, as we dive into the Word of God together. So we are in the middle of a sermon series on prayer. We're studying various passages of the Bible that teach us of these different aspects of prayer, what it sounds like, what it looks like, what the practice should be in our lives. And our goal in this sermon series is that we would be people who pray better and pray deeper. And the clear evidence that we're gaining traction with what we're studying in the Bible should be seen in our actual praying. That in the week ahead, you and I should actually pray and pray in ways that uh, show evidence of our understanding of God's Word. And so we've covered a lot of ground so far. We started in Luke chapter 11, and there uh, we were told what to pray. And we were told of the generous God to whom we pray. And then we spent two Sundays in Luke chapter 18. And first we learned uh, from the example of the persistent widow. We learned how to pray diligently for the vindication of our faith, knowing that God answers quickly that prayer from his child. Luke chapter 18 also taught us to pray humbly, like the tax collector who begged God for mercy. A couple of weeks ago, we were in Romans 15, and we learned about the pivotal role prayer plays in getting the gospel to the nations so that Christ would be made known where he has not been named. And so, so far in our study, we've looked at these different facets of prayer. It's all been good, but there's something missing. Not just something missing in the sermon series itself, Something missing in our theology and practice of prayer. If I were to ask you to list for me the top ten most important things any Christian should know about prayer, this one particular thing would be missing. I'm almost sure of it. And if I said, hey, let's do a list of top 20, I think it would still be missing. And top 30, I don't think it would be there. One of the more popular prayer books that's in circulation today, a great book, a book that I love, does not make any mention of this one thing we're going to study about today in Romans chapter 8. And are you ready for it? Are you ready to know what is missing from our prayer theology and our prayer practice? It is this. God, the Holy Spirit, prays for you. I'm going to take your silence as stunned awe at the amazing thing you have just heard about God. So I'll give you time to collect yourself, unpack your tambourine and ribbons, go for a lap around the sanctuary, and then we will reconvene. Because I'm telling you, God the Holy Spirit prays for you. When I say God the Holy Spirit, I don't mean God light. I don't mean the lesser God. I don't mean some manifestation of power between the Father and the Son. I mean God the Holy Spirit, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omni-loving God who knows you by name. He pleads your very case. He prays for you. 
And here's the thing with this statement that God the Holy Spirit prays for us. It could be that you've never heard this before. You did not even know it. It could be you have heard it, but you forgot because it's not something we talk about a lot. It's not a formative piece of our prayer theology. Or it could be that you knew this. You just didn't know what to do with it. What difference does it make that God the Holy Spirit prays for me? What are we supposed to do with that sort of information? Well, when Paul told Christians at the church in Rome that God the Spirit prayed for them, his intention was to add to their strength. Earlier in Romans chapter 8, Paul describes the scene. He says, all of creation groans under the decay of sin. Not only does creation groan under the decay of sin, but God's people as well, Christians groan. In verse 23, he says, we groan within ourselves as we await the redemption that will come with the appearance of Christ. When we look at the state of the world and we look at the condition in which we live and the way sin impacts us and the world we live in, our response is this spiritual groan. It's a grief that can't wait for relief. It's anticipation of a promise to be fulfilled when we see Christ face to face, either when he splits the sky and returns or we see him in his glory. And what was true of Christians then is true of Christians today. There's a future glory that awaits us, but for now we're living in a world marred by sin and in bodies that are assaulted by sin. In general, the human condition is marked by these really tragic things, sickness and death and grief and suffering. And so here's the big question put before us today. With our lives and the world around us in such poor condition, how will we ever make it through to the future glory that awaits us in Christ? Paul's answer is this. God, the Holy Spirit, prays for you. He fortifies you all the way to the very end. And so if you came in here this morning weak, and hurting, groaning, Paul wants you to know that God the Holy Spirit prays for you. So my goal today is to add to your strength by helping you understand the way the Holy Spirit prays for you. Our very brief passage gives us two characteristics of the Holy Spirit's prayer for us, and I want you to see it here in the Word. Follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 26, just two verses. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Two very simple verses that are packed with power and meaning, and they highlight for us the ways in which the Holy Spirit prays to get us through to the future glory held for us in Christ. Why is the Holy Spirit's prayer so effective? I want to give you two reasons from our passage this morning. The first reason the Holy Spirit's power or prayer is so effective is because the Holy Spirit knows our weakness and prays. He knows our weakness and He prays for us. Verse 26 makes this clear. 
And I want you to look with me at how verse 26 begins. Paul writes this. He says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. What does he mean in verse 26 when he says, in the same way? What is it that's being compared? What is in the same way? Well, remember that Paul's just described the groaning of creation under the weight of sin, as well as the groaning of Christians in a broken world while we wait on our future glory. And so when Paul says, in the same way, he's saying that the Holy Spirit shares in the suffering that all creation has experienced since Adam's sin. We look at the world with grief and sorrow at the injustice and the brokenness all around us, and we're not alone in that assessment or in that emotional response. God the Holy Spirit, in the same way, sees and feels, and I would say not just in the same way, but in an infinitely more intense way. God the Spirit fills the burden of sin in ways deeper and greater than you and I could ever imagine. God the Holy Spirit looks at sin and brokenness and injustice in the world, and like us, He groans. He's not indifferent to the state of affairs, and He he never has been. God has groaned since the Garden of Eden. Now, it's hard for us to imagine God groaning or God grieving. But isn't that what happened in John chapter 11 when Jesus stood among the weeping people at the tomb of his friend Lazarus? You remember that scene in John chapter 11? Jesus knew all that was about to happen. He knew that he was just a few words away from Lazarus coming out of that tomb alive after having been dead more than three days. But before performing the miracle... John 11.35 tells us Jesus wept. Why does he cry? Because he feels the weight of sin on people he loves. The way death reigns. God is not indifferent to these things. He groans with us. He grieves with us. He feels the weight of sin. But our God is not simply a weeping God. He's the helping God. Paul said this. He said, in the same way the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. What's our weakness? Paul doesn't seem to have anything specific in mind. You search through chapter 8, he doesn't pinpoint one specific area of weakness, but rather I think Paul is referring in general to the human condition. Our weakness is that sin wreaks havoc on our world and on our lives. And so God the Holy Spirit enters into our weakness to help us. He doesn't make us claw our way out of it to reach Him. He doesn't just give us a map and say, go do your best. He enters into the muck of life and He experiences the hurt and the sorrow from within our own grief and groaning. He helps. How does He help? Look again at verse 26. He says, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. There's a lot to unpack in that one little line. What does it mean that we don't know what to pray for as we should? I think we can understand that in two ways. First of all, we 
don't really know the will of God perfectly, and because of that, we don't know perfectly what to pray for in any given situation. And you might push back and say, well, sure, I, I know what to pray. If I'm sick, I know to pray for healing. If I'm confused, I know to pray for wisdom. Uh, if I, if I uh, am afraid, I know to pray for peace. Like I, I know, I diagnose, and then I pray for the thing. But here's the hard question you and I have to wrestle with. Do we pray for our way to be done or do we submit in prayer that God's way would be done? Who's the sovereign one in your prayer life? Do you pray as if you are the sovereign one and God is awaiting marching orders? Or do we pray humbly in submission to God that His will would be done above all else? We cannot presume that our wants and God's will are one and the same. Even when we want godly things, even when we want good things, we cannot presume that our wants and God's will are the same thing. Paul knew this himself in his own experience. He wrote about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul pleaded with the Lord three times that this thorn in his flesh would be removed. But do you remember how God answered Paul? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Whatever that thorn was remained by the will and the grace and the love of God. You see, we don't always know what to pray because we don't know the will of God perfectly. But there's another way, a second way in which we don't always know what to pray. I think it's in those moments when our hurt is so acute, we do not have the words to speak. We come before God in intense grief and sorrow and anguish, and all we can do is just cry. Don't know what to pray. I don't know what words would suffice in this pain, God, I just have to sit with you. Our distress robs us of the power to pour out our heart before God. And so our, our weakness results in our inability to know what to pray for, either because we don't know the will of God or we don't know the words in a certain situation. Our weakness leaves us without words to pray. And isn't it interesting that Paul's prescription for this problem is not to tell us how to get strong. And he doesn't tell us, here's how you find the will of God so you can pray. He doesn't tell us to seek for some special revelation. Rather, Paul's prescription is this, we don't know what to pray for in our weakness, so God the Holy Spirit will intercede for you instead. God the Holy Spirit will pray for you. Paul says the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. Your translation of the Bible might say inexpressible groanings. And what does that mean that he prays for us with unspoken or inexpressible groanings? Well, that phrase in English is, is not easily translated from the original Greek. But I think our best understanding is that God the Holy Spirit prays for us in a manner that is imperceptible to us. We're not aware of it, but he's always praying. We don't know it, but we know that He is praying. We don't speak the prayer God the Spirit does, and we don't hear the prayer, but God the Father does. God the Spirit is always, always praying for you. 
His prayer for you is a river of comfort in your affliction. He never sleeps. He never gets tired. He never pauses. He never takes a day off and just leaves it in your hands to take care of things. In every joy and every grief, the Holy Spirit prays for you. You're never alone. You're never forgotten. God, the Holy Spirit, prays for you. He knows our weakness and he prays. There's a second reason from this little passage why the Holy Spirit's prayer for us is so effective. Not only does he know our weakness, but second, the Holy Spirit knows the Father's will and prays. He knows our weakness and prays, and he knows the Father's will, and he prays in perfect alignment with the Father's will for you. Now, verse 27 can be a little confusing because we've got these pronouns that we, we need to work to connect to the proper people. There's a couple of he's there that, that we're not really sure on first reading who's being spoken of. So let me add a little bit of clarification. And I want to put verse 27 on the screen. And I put in parentheses who the object of the pronouns are. So verse 27 starts, and he, the first he is God the Father, who searches our hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit, because he, that second he is God the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, the Father who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Think about what Paul's told us about God the Father. He says, God the Father searches our hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit. What does God find when He searches our hearts? I think there's a couple of things He would find there. I think one, He would find the hurt and the anguish that we carry. Paul uses similar language at the beginning of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 2, he speaks of carrying unceasing anguish in his heart. So I think when God searches our hearts, he sees there the hurt, the pain, the disappointments, all the things that we groan over, God finds them there. But you know what else he finds when he searches our hearts? He not only finds the weaknesses we carry, but he finds the Spirit praying. He sees in us the indwelling Spirit's ministry of intercession taking place. And why is it that the Holy Spirit's prayer is so effective? Look at the last line of verse 27. It, Paul says, it's because he, the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of of God. This is so important for our understanding of how the Spirit prays for us to the Father. He prays for us according to the will of God. He doesn't pray according to our wants. He doesn't pray according to what we have prescribed will make us happy or content. He prays according to the will of the Father. You see, we don't know what to pray for in our weakness, but the Holy Spirit knows precisely what to pray because He knows the will of God the Father. This is our triune God in fellowship with one another. The Spirit and the Father and the Son, they know the will of God and it is prayed over you. God the Spirit prays the perfect will of God the Father for you. Now, this whole time you've been sitting patiently with a major objection on deck. I know you have. 
and you've been holding onto it, waiting for the moment to unload it. Maybe thinking, I'll grab Cody afterwards and I'll ask him this question, but let's just get to it now. Let's just deal with this conflict in the open. Here's the objection you've been carrying with you as we've talked about this. Your question is this. If I don't know what to pray, and if God the Spirit is always praying in perfect alignment for me with the will of God the Father, then why should I pray at all? That's the question. It's a fair question. And there's a lot of answers to that question, but first and foremost, we have to understand that prayer is a dialogue within a relationship. Prayer is not our Amazon wish list heaved up to heaven. In worship, we, or excuse me, in prayer, we worship and we adore and we have fellowship. We sit with our King. Prayer is not just, God, give me these things. It is the place where we enthrone Him and we worship Him and our hearts are bent to Him. A Christian who doesn't pray is like a husband who doesn't tell his wife he loves her because, oh, she ought to know by now. That's not what relationship looks like. Relationship is adoration. It's communion. It's fellowship and togetherness. That's what prayer is. The fact that God the Spirit is praying for you shouldn't lead you to pray less, but to pray all the more. You can pray in confidence and joy knowing that your need is perfectly presented before the Father. That perhaps you could pray this way. In fact, in a moment of crisis, you could pray, God, I'm hurting so much right now. I don't know what the solution is, but I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to pray your perfect will for me. And I'm just going to sit here and praise you. I've got one example of this in my life that just resonated as I thought about this passage over the last few weeks. It's a story my grandmother has told many times. And I'm, I mean, I've heard this story easily two dozen times. And the story goes like this. My grandmother's first husband, my mother's father, died unexpectedly in his 30s. And he left her a young widow with three kids. A few years later, she remarried, married the man that I knew as my grandpa, a wonderful man. And then a few years after that, her oldest child, her son, Michael, died in a car crash. And a few days after they buried Michael, she went to the church at night to pray. The sanctuary was always left open so people could come in and pray any time of day or night. And she had an agenda. She was coming to accuse God. She was coming in anger. And she had kept score of all the ways God had been unfair to her burying her husband whom she loved dearly, burying her son whom she loved dearly. Uh, She had known all kinds of pain and hurt and abuse throughout her life from other people and the things that had been most precious the Lord had taken from her. And she tells the story this way. She went into the sanctuary. She went down to the altar, the front of the room. In their tradition, there there was an altar there where you would go and kneel and pray. And when she opened her mouth to accuse God, 
she said she was surprised that praise came out. The first words out of her mouth were praise. And all that came out of her mouth that night in prayer was praise. She came to accuse, and instead she couldn't help but praise God. She praised Him for the husband He gave her, who walked with her in faith and who gave her three beautiful children. And she praised Him for this new husband she had, who was a godly and kind man. And she praised Him for 18 years with her son, knowing that not everyone was given such grace. She came in anger to accuse, and she praised him. And I think the reason she can pray that way, and the reason you and I would pray that way in turmoil, in the midst of groaning, is because God, the Holy Spirit, pleads our case according to the perfect will of the Father. And when he carries the load for us, our prayers can be praise and joy, even in the midst of greatest anguish and hurt. It's not fake to praise God from the pit. It is the richest theology to understand. We are supported and carried and advocated for for by God the Spirit Himself. And so why would we pray? Why wouldn't we pray knowing that God the Spirit is our intercessor and advocate, speaking the perfect will of the Father on our behalf? In this very issue about whether or not to pray, I came across a quote recently in a book by a woman named Carolyn Nystrom, along with J.I. Packer. The name of the book is Praying. And Nystrom makes this incredible comment based on this very verse, verse 26. And it's here on the screen. Look at what she says. She says, some people get so entangled in the various do's and don'ts of prayer, so transfixed by the problem of sorting out what is our part and what is God's part. So bogged down, fretting over whether they, as mere flawed humans, should ask anything of a holy, almighty God, or conversely, whether there's any point in asking, since God will do what He wants anyway, that they become paralyzed about praying. Don't fret. Just pray. God fixes our prayers on the way up. If He does not answer the prayer we made, He will answer the prayer we should have made. That is all anyone needs to know. He fixes our prayers on the way up. Are you kidding me? God the Spirit knows the will of God the Father. and He prays perfectly for you. I asked this question at the beginning of our time together. With our lives and our world in such poor condition, how will we ever make it through to the future glory that awaits us with Christ? And Paul's told us this morning, we will make it to that future glory that God holds for us because God the Spirit fortifies us in our weakness by praying our triune God's perfect will for us. It's entirely possible that that may not seem like good news to you. You may think that the prayers of the Holy Spirit are not tangible enough. I need something tactile. I need something visible. I I don't just need to know that there's an invisible conversation happening 
But brothers and sisters, doesn't the Bible teach us that the unseen world is the most real of all? When the Spirit prays about you, He is dispatching all the resources of heaven to your aid until the day your weakness ends and your faith becomes sight. This is not some quaint theological point that we just say, yeah, I believe that. It is the way in which heaven's resources come to bear in our immediate needs in the here and now. So what should we do in light of Romans 8, 26 and 27? I think this passage calls for two responses. The first response is that the knowledge that the Holy Spirit prays for us should change the way we go through trials. So if you are in the thick of it today, I want you to apply the truth of this passage to your hopelessness or to your fear or to your panic or your anxiety or your doubts or your anger. Your advocate is always carrying you in prayer. Let that add endurance to your soul. Paul gave this truth to the Roman church to help them in all of their affliction. It should do the same for us. Be strengthened by the knowledge that God the Spirit prays for you in your weakness according to the perfect will of the Father. And our second response should be this. This passage should lead us to more praying. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Okay, Paul. And in Ephesians 3.16, or excuse me, 6.18, he tells us, pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. Yeah, we can do that. We know that the Holy Spirit prays for us, and so then we can pray in this way. We can pray, not my will, but your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can pray that with joy and delight, knowing our case is settled before the throne. You can pray like this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me. How do we know He's with us? God the Spirit praying for us, interceding for us in front of the Father. And Christian, do you know that you, you don't have just one intercessor? You have two. You have an intercessor in heaven, the Son of God, who intercedes on our behalf, defending us from all charges that might be brought against us, guaranteeing our salvation in the day of our final judgment. And you also have an intercessor in your heart, God the Holy Spirit indwelling you who effectively prays to the Father on your behalf and carries us through all the hardships of this life until we get to glory. You have an intercessor in heaven and an intercessor inside. Paul knew firsthand what this life-changing love of Christ was like and the strength that came from the Holy Spirit praying for him. And that's why the way he ends chapter 8 is the declaration that should mark our lives as people prayed for by God the Spirit as we look at the world around us in all of its decay and all of the reasons to groan and we declare along with the Word of God in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Now if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want, I want to talk directly to you for just a moment. What we've talked about this morning from Romans chapter 8 is a spiritual benefit that belongs to those who know Jesus as their Savior. Did you notice in verse 27 that Paul describes 
who it is that the Spirit prays for. He says he is praying for the saints. And, and who are those saints? Well, it's not saints in the Catholic sense. It, it is believers. That's a word the New Testament uses to describe those who walk with Jesus by faith. And so if Jesus is not your Savior, you have no intercessor in heaven and you have no intercessor on earth, you're left to your own to answer for your sin against God. But here's the good news. The good news is that God loves you and He has shown that love by giving His Son, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, to die in your place for your sin. Jesus is both fully human and fully God. He's not half and half. He's 100%, 100%. Uh, born of a virgin. He's fully human, which means he really died on the cross. He's fully God, which means that death is the one and only perfect sacrifice for our sin. It's the death, his death alone, by which we can be saved. And three days after he died, he rose from the dead, and his promise is that those who will call on his name, those who will trust in him, will be saved from their sin and held for a future glory. Here's what you have to do today, friend. You've got to turn from your sin, all the brokenness that you've pursued, all the, the, the wickedness in your life. You've got to turn from your self-righteousness, the things that you think plead your case before God, and all you do is throw your life on the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. Your trust, your faith is in Jesus as you turn your life to him. And having done so, the intercessor in heaven does his work for your soul. And then the intercessor in you, God the Spirit, begins to carry you through these days all the way to glory. There's no greater intercessor than God the Spirit himself. That work is not outsourced to anyone else. It is God the Spirit himself who pleads your case and will hold you all the way through. And today, if you're ready to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, grab me, one of the pastors, a friend you're here with. Let's talk about that and pray together so that you would know the glory of God that he holds for you. Let's pray together. Father God, in our weakness, we don't know what to pray. I know that there is no hard thing that we would bring before you that God the Spirit, you haven't already groaned over and grieved like we have. There's no pain that we feel that you haven't known there's no cause in our lives that we have to awaken you to or alert you to. You know them all. And in this we praise you. God the Holy Spirit, we praise you. Thank you for your advocacy on our behalf, praying for us. Thank you, God the Spirit, for being our intercessor according to the perfect will of God the Father. And we know that in God the Father is a heart of love. Holy Father, we don't have to beg you to love us. You've shown your love for us through the gift of the Son. So I pray that you would lift our hearts this morning, that you would strengthen us as we know that we are not alone, that we have a perfect advocate, 
the one in us and the one in heaven. Father, give strength to my brothers and sisters today, and I pray that you would bring new life to the friend in here whose eyes you are awakening to faith. Though they've been spiritual and religious and done more good than bad by their estimation, God, I pray they would cast all that aside and throw their lives fully on Jesus Christ, that they would be saved, they would be made your child, and they would walk with you for all eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we're going to respond this morning to the Word of God by continuing in worship through the Lord's Supper. And if somehow you made it into the sanctuary without grabbing the elements, they're on the tables out in the lobby, and now would be the time to go grab those and bring it back in. And I can't think of a better passage to take the Lord's Supper in response to. As we've talked about the way God the Spirit intercedes for us and the truth that God the Son intercedes for us as well in heaven, pleading our case. Well, the Lord's Supper reminds us of this intercessory work. You see, the Lord's Supper is not where we secure our salvation, but we celebrate the salvation we've been given freely by God. This is where we praise God for the gift of His Son who died in our place for our sin. He gave His body, He spilled His blood as the perfect sacrifice for our salvation. And so here at South Shore Baptist Church, we invite all followers of Jesus Christ to take the Lord's Supper with us, but we do so with this careful explanation. The Lord's table is not where we find salvation. It's where we celebrate the salvation that has found us. This is where we praise Father, Son, and Spirit for the perfect sacrifice that makes us alive by faith in Christ. So if Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, we invite you to eat and drink with us this morning. And there's no rule that says you have to. You may need this time to sit in contemplative prayer. or You may even need to just consider your own walk with the Lord, your own soul before the Lord. This is a time for us to thank God for what He's done for us through the Son. And before we eat and drink together, let's take a few moments in silent prayer. Take this time and prepare your heart and pray as you need to before we continue in worship.
Father, so many of us from our childhood were taught a song with the line, they are weak, but he is strong. So we praise you for your strength today, seen in the love of Christ poured out at the cross. We come to you in weakness. We don't come by merit. We come claiming the truths of your word trusting in your promises. We come praising you for the gift of your son whose life has secured our salvation, whose righteousness is ours, whose holiness is ours by faith. We thank you for body and blood given for us. We're grateful to be your children. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So friends, would you please open the bread end of your container. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and 24. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Would you carefully open your cup? Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 25 and 26. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. Father, for body and blood given for us, we praise you. For every promise that comes with it, we praise you a future glory that awaits where there's no more crying, tears, or pain, or sickness, or sorrow, or death. A future where we know and are fully known. A glory where we are face to face with you, praising you for all eternity. God, we long for that day. We can't wait for that day. But as that day waits, and as we walk with you, may we walk in this sweet communion, knowing that we have an advocate in us, an advocate in heaven, body and blood shed for us, holding us all the way through to that glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.